You are listening to The Vet Podcast, presented by veterinarian Dr. Brian Greger from New Zealand and featuring an international team of animal health professionals. Join us as we discuss pet health issues from around the world. Last episode, we caught up with Jim White, veterinarian and son of Elf White, who was better known to us by his non-diplume of James Heriot. And we talked to him about the world of James Heriot, a popular attraction in the small town of Thursk in Yorkshire. In this episode, we again talk to Jim about old-time veterinarian, if there's such a word. Now, as fate would have it, my internet connection had a major fault while I was recording, and only about a third of the recorded interview was recoverable. Nevertheless, Jim discussed old-time treatments, anaesthetics, and surgery. Many of us will have watched cats and dogs sitting in front of the television, intently watching. Are they seeing what we are seeing? Scott Arnold from Ontario, Canada, has been watching television with his cat. Now, most of us know the name James Heriot. Once again, we catch up with the author, Elf White's son, veterinarian Jim White, for an unfortunately slightly truncated interview. Jim, as a veterinarian like myself who has seen a lot of changes in veterinary medicine, I'll put you on the spot here and ask you, what do you think has been the biggest development in veterinary medicine from your father's time till now? Oh, I think basically the development is is the march of knowledge and when my dad started, there was still a lot of black magic treatments going on, you know, weird sort of old-fashioned treatments, like witchcraft, really. I think the development of drugs like the, the antibiotics and the corticosteroids and all the wonderful advances in anesthesia, together with an awareness of our customers, the farmers, they've become far more knowledgeable in looking after their animals. I think these are the great developments in veterinary practice. Uh, I don't know how what it's like in New Zealand, but another development that's happened has been the tremendous upsurge in small animal practice in this country. People preparing to spend so much more on their pets, on their animals. So a lot of practices are now very much small animal orientated. And I think that the knowledge that's, that the, we've accrued over the years, the tremendous developments, um, technical developments in veterinary practice, and the development of special, specialist centres, Doing things like um, working on on ophthalmic stuff, you know, the taking out cataracts and, and doing hip replacements and these type of we never heard of in my father's day. These these development of these big specialist centres, and it can only be the good because we're dealing with an ever more demanding public, aren't we? Rightly so. They they, they pay for our services and they expect the best. I look at my practice pharmacy now, and it's got so many drugs, and they're both human and veterinary. And I think back to when I qualified, which was over 30 years ago now, and medical arsenal was only a fraction of we got na- of what we have got now. What was the situation in your dad's time? Well, of course, this is the day before he had any antibiotics to treat infections. And so they were putting things like mustard plasters onto calves with pneumonia, and, uh, and they were putting diesel oil onto animals with skin diseases and all this sort of weird things. In fact... I remember he used to tell me that with horses with colic, they used to stuff raw onions up the rectum of horses with colic, you know, this sort of thing. <laughs> My dad used to like these cases because he used to take the onions out. He used to cure them by taking the onions out. But uh, then suddenly, of course, the way it's changed, he suddenly had the modern drugs. And then overnight almost, the vet became the magician with the needle. There were great days for the vet there, the magic man with the needle. 
you know, these days have gone. So th- these old treatments that they're using, the onions and the, and the mustard poultices, did they work? I think some of them used to, used to work. There always was a little bit of um, truth in some of these old, uh, and logic in some of these old witchcraft treatments. I mean, if you look at the world of James Herriot at some of the, the stands in the old pharmacy, some of the stuff, the, the stuff they used to drench down calves with, with husk parasitic bronchitis, mixtures with ether and turpentine and arsenic and all these things. I mean, they used to, half of them used to kill the patient, let alone the worms. Uh, some of them used to work, especially the castor oil. You know, I don't know what it's like in New Zealand, but the old-fashioned farmers here, a stoppage was the worst thing an animal could have. You know, they used to call castor oil opening medicine. Yeah, exactly, castor oil and ginger powder. Oh, wonderful stuff. I mean, an old vet told my father when he was a student in Glasgow, oh, God, when he was in the 1930s, he said, uh, if you want to be a success in veterinary practice, just keep the bowels open and trust the rest to God, you know. (laughs) (laughs) A little grain of truth there as well. (laughs) Exactly, and the grain of truth I've got is that the best veterinarian in the world is Mother Nature, leave the thing alone, so... (laughs) <laughs> moving on, moving on. You've, you've alluded to it earlier. Um, small animal surgeries are really becoming a big part of veterinary practice these days, and a lot of that is actually surgery. Now, we've got advanced anesthetic machines. Our young surgeons wouldn't consider anesthetising a patient without a machine connecting it, having a number of monitors measuring every body function it can, and most particularly, it's got to go beep. Um, back in the early days, I would imagine that anaesthetics wouldn't be quite so high-tech. <clears throat> they certainly weren't. I mean, when I came to the practice, <clears throat> I worked somewhere else first, but I came to the practice in 1967. Nearly all the operations were sent away to a, a small animal practice. They weren't done uh, at Thirsk here. Um, so I just bought myself a little... T- to and fro anaesthetic operation with a carbon dioxide absorber, you know, and did a little bit of our closed-circuit anaesthesia, as it was, and we started doing our own operations. Prior to that, it was putting their noses into masks of ether. Uh, I mean, you could smell the ether down the street outside our surgery, just an open mask. Goodness knows if anybody got a cigarette in the place, you know, because the place, they could have blown the place up. It was very, talk about high tech, it was just exactly the opposite. But, you know, my dad was such a, he, he said he described himself as a nervous anesthetist. And whenever I was operating or he was helping, he never took his eyes off the animal. You know, this is what used to worry him. He said all this high tech stuff that was coming in. He said, nevertheless, you've still got to watch your patient. Because if it stops breathing, you've got to do something. <laughs> so he was very good that way. And that, unfortunately and frustratingly, is where the internet fell over. Cutting short our interview with Jim. Modern technology, eh? Never mind. We move on now to veterinarian Scott Arnold from Ontario, Canada, who answers the question that that awesome Australian band from the 80s, Hunters and Collectors, asked. Do you see what I see? Scott, let's just cut straight to the chase. Can cats and dogs see TV? Well, I guess the answer to that depends. It depends on the fiber optics of your TV, and it also depends on the temperament of the pet. So I guess the big thing we need to know is this thing called refresher rate. This is about how fast an image on a TV changes. 
We know that humans need a, a refresher rate about 16 to 20 images per second. Pets, they say, need about 70 um, images per second. If it's slower than that, instead of seeing a continuous motion, these the dogs and cats are seeing uh, still pictures coming up now and then. Now, if you look at your old TVs, they had a flicker rate around 24, so all they would be seeing is still images every <laughs> once in a while. On the other hand, your modern TVs, like your HD TVs, they're about 100 um, flicks per second. So yes, dogs would be able to watch those guys. So are they seeing what we're seeing? No, I don't think so. I think they're seeing, first of all, they don't see the colors we see. We have um, about three sets of cones in our eyes, which allows us to differentiate between colors. On the other hand, dogs, they only have about two cones. So they're not seeing the same colors at all as us. The other thing is, depends on the type of images. They say you have to put the TV down at their level rather than up high. They don't like to look up. They say they like to watch things that are moving across the screen like animals rather than um, up high things and it attracts their attention. Are there any breed differences? Well, uh, that's controversial too. They say Greyhound and Labs seem to like TV a lot better than other pets. But um, they were talking also about birds. The problem with birds is they have a very high flicker rate. And they were saying that even if you put the TV on for birds, it's almost cruel because it's almost like a strobe light going off for birds because they have such a fly high flicker rate. So there are differences in, in breeds and also differences in species for sure. What about um, things like the, the focal length, like the, the, how clear the vision is going to be to cats and dogs? Right. Their retina is not as developed as ours, so they don't see clear images like we do. They're a little more blurry and, and um, a little bit different than what we see for sure. Now, the funny part about it is cable companies are counting on this in North America here. They've started cable channels for dogs only that people subscribe to, so <laughs> I guess they're hoping that dogs are going to watch TV. So what kind of programming are they putting on that? Uh, apparently, one's dogs like other dogs. <laughs> That's what they're doing here. Seems pretty strange to me. As kids, we, we were told, you know, don't sit too close to the television, you're going to go blind. The cats here at home, they sit right in front of the telly. Um, are they going to be doing any damage to their eyesight? Apparently not. And I don't know if that's true for people either. I watched a lot of TV when I was a kid, and I'm, I'm not blind yet. But uh, no, I don't think there's any proof that they're going to go blind. There's one, there's one thing that, I mean, when I have clients come to the clinic saying, oh, my dog's going blind, I'm always sort of fairly quick to tell them, look, probably 80% of the orientation and things that your dog's doing is coming from smell. That's got to be decreasing the viewing pleasure of the animals, I would imagine, watching television, wouldn't it? Yes, I think smell is probably their biggest. They have their nose to the ground. That's how they, they do most things. So unless they invent smell vision, I guess they're just going to be watching things go by the screen. Scott, thanks very, very much for spending the time with us again. Oh, no problem at all. It's always a pleasure. You have been listening to The Vet Podcast. You can find us on Facebook, the Vet Podcast app in Play Store, iTunes, Google Play, or bookmark us in your favourite podcast player. To contact us, message through Facebook or email vetpodcast at gmail.com. Music